Good morning. Good morning. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord. You just don't even know. Amen. Uh, I have been anticipating today. Uh, as most of you know, we have been in our study in 1 Timothy for, what, six, seven months now? And uh, maybe a little longer. I've lost kind of track of time. Uh, moving does that to you. Discovery. So we come to chapter 3, and we have gone through the entirety of chapter 3 now, and we just lack three verses, but I'm going to tell you, it feels like we've already covered them, but I know we haven't, because I've been anticipating this particular sermon. As you all know, my heart is for the New Testament church, and um, it always has been, at least since I can remember uh, when I surrendered to the ministry, I... I have always had a heart for the local New Testament church, and so I am grateful to be in this spot right here. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask you to turn with me, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14, and we're going to read 15 and 16 as well. I'm going to have you stand, if you would please, in honor and reverence of the Word of God, as we begin right here in chapter 3, verse 14. It reads this way. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the, in the world, and received up in the glory. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this passage of scripture, and we ask you, Lord, to help us as we see clearly the heart of the church. Forgive us now and watch over us. Bless us today as we continue to study in your word. Help us, Lord, to glean those things that are needful, where we might uh, be, have a deficit, and uh, where we can improve. And we pray earnestly, Lord, that right now we'll see the heart of the church in its ministry, and its message. And Lord, help us to understand that we might know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So as we begin this morning, I, I, I always talk about this particular verse when, in reference to the church because it is the church. It is the heart of everything that we know and do within the local congregation. I'm always reminded to, to explain to you one thing. The church is not a place, it is a people. I always say it the other way, it's, not, it's a people, not a place, right? We, were, we have to be reminded of that because as, as the people of God doing the will of God on earth, and that is the responsibility of the church. And by the way, you need to understand that word church just, just specifically. It isn't some universal thing. It is a local, visible body of, of simple believers. That's what the word means, is to assemble. You have to be present to be there. In heaven, there's an assembly. Here, there's an assembly. Now, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And I need you to see that because it only makes sense. This passage of scripture only makes sense in a local context. The heart of the church revolves around its conduct based out of the relationship it has with Christ. That's the, the proposition for you this morning. So in order to understand it, in order to understand that the heart of that church is revolving around our relationship with Jesus and how
how, we're, how it manifests in basically three ways. So here's what I want you to see. Our, our, our question this morning to answer from this passage is, what are the three areas we must, as the church, focus on? And I want to give it to you. This is We're going back to basics to the church life here. And I, and I just want to give it to you piece by piece. First, we want to see the heart of the church in its ministry. Then we want to move further on and, and see really the heart of the church, uh, excuse me, let me get that here, in its mission, and then finally in its message. So that's what, those are your three points this morning, just so you can get them out of the way and have them already written so you can hear what the Word of God says. Let's go back to the basics for just a second. You know, I, I read a story this week uh, about uh, Vince Lombardi. Now, most of you know who that is. It's football season. I watched my, my first football game of the season yesterday my son's birthday party here in this church. Had a great time yesterday doing that, and, and I gotta tell you, this story really, really, it kinda hits home right here where we are. The basics of church life is kinda where we are. We need to start back with the basics. Vince Lombardi once, uh, when he came and, and uh, as coach, he came in and he said, gentlemen, this is a football, and he held up a football. Now that may seem kind of trite and, and trivial right now, but you need to understand, he wanted, he was a basics kind of guy. He broke everything down to, this is where we start and everything builds off of this foundation. And that's kind of where this is. The whole of 1 Timothy is based around this particular passage of scripture. And I wanna read it to you just one more time here so, so you get it, so that there's no confusion, okay? So in, in 1 Timothy, I, want, I just wanna read you 15 and 16 in particular. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. 15 says, But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. For the last several weeks or months, I guess, since we've been in 1 Timothy, everything has been focused and been around this passage of Scripture. So when we talk about everything happening in the book of 1 Timothy, it's based right here. We are, as the church of the living God, and that's what it says, the pillar and ground of the truth, not any truth, his truth, specifically. And it is imperative that we understand our place in God's economy on this. Because the church matters. Now, I know that there's a lot of ministries out there that, uh, that love to devalue the church and they say, well, it's not really that important. It's more important about your individual relationship. And believe me, no one is a proponent of individual relationships to Christ than me. But there is something to be said about a congregation of saints doing the work of God on earth because we've been commissioned by the Lord himself to do it. We're going to get there today. We're going to talk about that. But the heart of the church begins right here in its ministry first. Now, the very first ministry you learn as a new believer in Jesus Christ is the ministry of holiness. The ministry of holiness. Now, why do I say that? Well, because there is something that fundamentally changes within a person when they become born again. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you that is your first ministry. You may, have, you may have every other ministry going on in the church, but can I just tell you that if you don't have that one correct, the other one doesn't matter. You could be, you could be that, that certain someone who, who literally is doing everything in the world for everybody else, but you're missing on this point. You've missed the point of all of it. 
And it says that very specifically in this, in this passage. Did you see it? Now I'm going to go back and talk about 14 a little bit, but I, I really want you to see 15. That thou mayest know how thou oughtst to behave thyself in the house of God. Now, you can say that word house there is a household word, not just a house like a physical place. How do, you, how do you behave yourself in your family? How do you behave yourself in the church? You see, conduct is a result of a change. The change inwardly is a reflection of what is going to be the change on the outside. It's going to happen. It's the natural outflow. So here we hear Paul wants to make sure it's not just Timothy he's talking to here, although in the book is written to Timothy, but it's so that he can communicate to the church at Ephesus because they've got big problems there. The church at Ephesus, if you'll remember back in the book of Acts, when Paul began at that church, Acts chapter 19, it was a uh, tumult, to say the least. There was a riot breaking out because of what Paul did there. Paul began to come in and preach the gospel. By the way, that is the primary focus and function of the church. And when, they be, when he began to preach the gospel, everything in the place turned upside down. All the, the silversmiths were, were furious with Paul because he was, he was converting people to Jesus. There's no idol for them to build and, and to make money on. And so there was a tumult that happened. And can I tell you that every single time that Jesus is put forth, that Jesus is lifted up, that the truth of God comes out, there is a tumult. Because sinful men don't want righteousness. They want self-righteousness. And that's really the basis of this, right? So when we read it, when we see how we oughtest behave ourselves, that word behave is a, is a different word for us. We don't like being told how we have to live. But it really has the idea rooted in holiness. The change that happened in you at Christ, when Christ came in, is right there. And it changes everything. I am not the same person I used to be. So let me give it to you straight here, just plain. We'll start in verse 14 so we can kind of build to that. But that's going to be our first point, the ministry. The heart of the church is in its ministry, right? So our very first ministry is the response that we have to Jesus Christ. It's what outwardly happens based on the inward change. So let's look into it. Now, Paul, Paul writes this first, so just so we can see it. I'm going to flip over there real quick uh, here in 1 Timothy. He writes it like this. He says, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. Now, Paul realized that he may or may not be able to come over to Ephesus. He wants to get back there, but he never does. So he writes this so that he can go on ahead of it, so he can prepare Timothy's heart for what needs to happen in Ephesus. And so he, he writes it out because he wants to come and talk to him about it, but he's going to make sure Timothy's got everything set. These things write I unto thee. Hoping to come unto thee shortly. Then he says this. You're going to love. He's writing. Now specifically. The entirety of the epistle is what this is talking about. He wants to make sure that all of this information that he's conveying to Timothy is going to go to the church. Because in chapter 1 we learn how to deal with false teachers. How to, how to build back and, and, and not, uh, not fall under their spell. And he comes in there and tells Timothy, you need to set things right and make sure 
that these things were in order. Then we learn in chapter 2, roles and responsibilities, men and women in particular. And how, how men are supposed to pray always, everywhere, lifting up, right? And that women are coming along behind the men and, and, and doing what they do to raise up godly generations behind them. We learned that in chapter 2. By the time you get to chapter 3, we're now delineating leadership versus others. we got leadership and servants coming into play and how they function. And so right here at the end of it, it's kind of the hinge point of the whole book. Everything's been kind of positive up until now. Now he's going to turn a little negative so that there is a connotation of, of I expect this to happen. And so right here is that hinge point. And he says, if I tarry long, I'm writing to you so that you have these instructions clearly. And he says that thou oughtest behave thyself, how, how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God. Now, behavior then is going to be our key word. Behavior on the other side of salvation is the only place you can put it. If you put behavior first and then expect salvation on the other side, you've missed it. Because behavior can't change outside of Jesus Christ. I, I, you, can, you can make a change for a little bit, and it'll, but it won't stick. You know how it sticks? The inward change has to happen first. And then the outward behavior changes as a result. So he says, behave thyself. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Well, let me give it to you like this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Oh, wait, let me go ahead and get there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. Here's what it says. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. That word conversation is the same root word as we get behave. Behavior. Because it is written, be ye holy for I'm holy. So now there's a change. God says, I am you. I am in you through Christ Jesus. And because I am in you, I am holy. You need to be holy. Don't go back to what you knew before. That's what the first part of that verse says in verse 14. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. Don't go back. Oh, we have a tendency to, don't we? We, we want to because it's easier. But as he which called you is holy, be holy. It's not even complicated. Now, I know you don't necessarily like that. That's okay. I didn't like it either when I read it. And it's frustrating because I don't want to be holy all the time. Sometimes I just want to be angry at everybody, especially if you drive the roads here in Bentonville. There goes that car reference again, right? Craziness in Bentonville. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, just so you can see a little backup verse here. This is Paul writing Paul right to the, the church now, specifically in Ephesus. Here's what he says, verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, there's that word again, behavior, the old man which is corrupt according to deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. There's that holiness word again. Verse 25 says, Wherefore put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that steal or stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, 
working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him the needed. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Now why do I read all of that? Because what you need to see on the backside is the change. We're not evil speaking. We're not going after wrath. We're not doing these things because of holiness in us in Jesus Christ. The change has to happen. Behavior is a result of the change. Now, that word behavior is a Greek word, and it's threefold. So it means to metaphorically, it means to conduct oneself uh, or behave oneself in life. It's just a matter of behavior. You know, your mom expects you certain behaviors, right? I mean, all moms do. Moms have got this way about them. They can look at you sideways and you know you messed up. Why is it, why should it be any different for us? We're part of our family and there's a, an expectation of behavior. And if there's not, you haven't done something right as a parent. There should be an expectation. But can I tell you that if Jesus Christ has changed you, there ought to be a change. There ought to be a behavioral difference. I ought not to be the same as I used to be. You know, I used to be hot-headed. Uh, I used to be uh, one of those guys who, uh, who went out for himself and just was looking for looking out for number one. That had to change. Now, my wife early on thought maybe that change was, was driven by my family because now I had a family, and families sometimes can do that. They can force you to, you know, I, I live so that my children see something better in me than they saw it than I saw in my father and so on. But can I tell you that doesn't even stick then? Oh, it may work for a little while and, and then the kids get grown up and and then the parents get a divorce because they can't stand each other because it really wasn't a change. It was just kind of a force thing. Can I just tell you something? Jesus Christ doesn't force himself on you. Right. He doesn't do that. The change that Jesus does in you is when you willingly give over. And in your willingness to give over, he says, I've got a better way. And he changes us from the inside. And therefore, our behavior is not forced. It becomes the next step. It becomes the way we live. So we ought just to behave ourselves, right? In the house of God. Well, we're going to talk about that. By the way, it's an Old Testament phrase. Phraseology means in the temple, where there are certain behaviors you have in the temple. You don't you don't just come up and show up and and uh, and do your own thing. That's not the way God operates. God has a prescription. God has a way, and there ought to be things set in order. Titus chapter two. Please, if you turn there. Now. Conversely, with, with Timothy, there was another young pastor named Titus who got a similar letter to Timothy. I don't know if Timothy just needed more instruction. That could possibly happen. I know every pastor is different. And so, you know, we all need a little extra instruction at some points or another. But Titus comes along and he gets a similar letter. And I want you to hear this is the entire chapter of chapter 2. And, and I read this so that there's an understanding of how this happens or what this looks like, or at least through 15. Here's what it says. 
But speak now the things which become sound doctrine. He's writing to Titus, telling him, this is what you need to do. You need to speak the things that make sound doctrine. That the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, and patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becoming holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. That they may teach the young women to be sober, <clears throat> to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Now, pause there. Understand that Paul writes all this to Titus so that there's an understanding that this is how you behave yourself if you're an old man, a young man, an old woman, or a young woman. That pretty much covers everybody because Paul didn't understand gender fluidity. Okay? Get me started on that one. There are only two genders, and so he, he works it out. He says, older women, younger women, and these are your roles. Here's what you're supposed to do. And verse 5 says, at the end of verse 5, that the word of God be not blasphemed. The reason why you have good behaviors for everybody in the church and how that's supposed to look is so that the word of God will not be blasphemed among the heathen. They look into the church, and they see the church and how we behave, and they, they look into it, and they go, I don't think they believe what they say. Or, wow, they actually go for what they say. They actually believe it. Because how do I know? Because their actions match their words. Their orthodoxy matches their orthopraxy, right? That's what that means. And so you move a little further. Young men likewise exhort to be sober-minded in all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works, in doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, now listen to it. That he that is of a contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say to you. Now pause. There's your number two, right? Because what this says is now you're, you're, they're not going to have anything bad to say about you. Because if they can say something bad about you, they will. Outside the church, they, they love to pick us apart. They love to, to get on national TV and see all those crazy preachers who've gone off on deep end and, and are living in some kind of sin and they love to hold those up and say see this is why we don't christian this is why we don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites down there they're absolutely right but praise the lord that jesus saves amen otherwise we're all in trouble right what's the point otherwise so there's a change that happens and he says here and i just want to read it again verse 8 the end of verse 8 that he that is of a contrary part may be ashamed. You see, whenever they come against you and they shouldn't have reason to, to say you're doing something awful because you shouldn't give it to them. You're doing these things. Your, your, your change that happened in you is manifested in your behavior. And that way they're ashamed when they come against you and try to say something. And rest of having no evil thing to say of you. Now read a little further because we got one more. Now exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. These are employees under their own bosses, and say please to them and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity. Now here it is, the last part of ten, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Now wait a minute. Hold on. You're saying that at me as an employee. I've got a responsibility to be a good employee so that, wait for it, verse 10 says, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. Yeah. 
You're to be the you're to be the best employee you can possibly be, for God's sake. Not for yours. Remember we remember we studied this in if you were with us in our study of First Corinthians in, on Wednesday nights. All things for His glory. That includes our work. Now, is it hard? Absolutely. Are you always pleased to punch as punch to, to please your boss? No. But your boss isn't your boss. Your boss is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yeah. Now I'm going to read the rest of it because we need to, we need to hear the rest of it. So verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It doesn't say the world to come. It says right now. You're to live soberly, righteously, and godly now. That's the responsibility of believers and behavior in the house of God and outside, by the way. This is for everybody who is in Jesus Christ. Because that's what it says. For the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. Here's the rub for us. Do you know or do I know who exactly in the world is going to be saved? No. But Jesus Christ has appeared as Savior for all men. But guess what? They will not come to Christ when they see people acting a fool. You can like that or don't like that. You say, well, that's not my responsibility. Absolutely it is. You've been saved by the grace of God. You ought to live like it. That's all that is. You say, well, you're being judgmental. Ah, you can get over that. I just delivered the mail. I didn't write it. It says that, though. It says, teaching us that denying ungodliness, worldly lusts, we deny those things. That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And guess what? We're looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen every day. I want to see Jesus Christ come. I want to see it because I'm tired. There are days I get up and I go to work every day and, I, and, I, and I'm just tired of it. Not of my job necessarily, but I'm tired of, of striving against the world. And I'm ready for Jesus to come. By the way, the rest of that verse says, Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. Do you know that you won't be zealous of good works if you're not born again? Why would you be? I'd be looking out for number one if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. All I want to do is please me. <coughs> Crickets. I get it. No response. I get it. Because that's how we would be. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ, his righteousness imputed us, what would we be living for? That's how we're built. And he says this to Timothy to Titus. These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. Don't be ashamed of preaching. Okay? Now, now that's, the, that's the ministry we have. The ministry as the church is to live like we've been saved. Not even gone. It's not even hard. Second, the heart of the church and its mission. Now, this is where we, we like this part. The mission seems easy. Maybe it's because we, we've, we may, either one may not be doing it right if it's easy. Two, we ain't trying. Right? 
So let me give it to you. This is 1 Timothy 3, 15. It's the second part. It says, but if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou hast behaved thyself in the house of God, which is the church of God, of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. We are the church of the living God. Now let me place it in contrast to you. Because he's writing to Timothy at Ephesus. Ephesus is known for deity. You know, the wrong kind of deity. Little G. They are known for the goddess Diana or the god Little G of Artemis. Both are the same, by the way. They needed to have uh, Diana and Artemis are, are, are uh, the male-female version of their god. Whichever you need. That's convenient. God of fertility, in fact, to the Ephesians. But here's the thing. It's a dead God. It's not a real God. And so Paul contrasts in here. He says, the living God. We are the, the church of the living God. We're not the part of the dead God. They would understand that there in Ephesus. They would understand that dead gods are idol gods. They're the ones that we used to worship in our paganism. And now we've come out of that in Jesus Christ, the living Jesus Christ, the one who is resurrected the third day. And we are the pillar and ground of his truth. Now, this is where it gets a little complicated for us. The assembly of the living God as opposed to a false and dead God. Turn with me to Acts chapter 19. I want you to see it. Because Acts is a great place to go and look at uh, how, how the church interacted with the world. Because a lot of us think that, well, the early church, where well, they were some kind of super saints. And they weren't any different than us, really. But, but we always see them as super saints. And so let me read it to you. This Skip down a few verses. Verse 21. It says, After these things were ended, Paul proposed in the Spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent to, into Macedonia two of them to minister unto him, Timotheus and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a season. At the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. Now, there's a key verse for you. Wait for it. At the same time, there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith. Imagine that. Which made silver shrines for Diana. Oh, shocker there. Here it comes. Brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, you know that we by this craft we have our wealth. Now you get to it, right? So the world's looking at this. And they say, well, you, you bunch of Christians, you, you've interfered in our wealth problem here, our wealth issue. I remember back a few years ago in the United States, it was, it's the economy, stupid. Right? That's what they used to say. Wait for it, though. Moreover, you see in here that not alone in Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul, had persuaded and turned away much people, saying they that they be no gods. <laughs> I, I, I grin and kind of laugh at that a little bit. You know why? Amen. I just want to get up there and help Paul. For some reason, I just want to go show up and, and say, Paul, let's go, man. But you need to understand, you're messing with people's livelihoods now. This is where Christians lose their backbone in a hurry. Because when you start messing with people's livelihoods, people get irate. They get mean. They get nasty. Here's what he says, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. Idol worship. 
Wait for it though, here's what it says. So that not only this, our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Now you need to understand, in the temple of Diana, there are 127 pillars at this time, made of solid marble. Over on those pillars are encrusted jewels and overlaid with gold. Each one was given by a different king to pay homage to the Greek world, yes, but also to the temple of Diana, the goddess Diana. So now we've, we've done something else. Not only we interrupted money, we've also interrupted religion. I use it just like that, it's religion. Not only our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised. Now he's just playing on emotion. He said, you know, all these little things we make and we sell to people we're making our money on, it's not only that, that's not my real reason. He pretends to be all pious, this silversmith. But he says, now the temple Diana is gonna be despised. That's how you get people stirred up. Because it doesn't matter to them about the silversmiths. What matters now is you're, you're messing with my religion. Can I tell you that in modern society today, we have a similar religion? In fact, it's very similar to the worship of goddess Diana. We just call it worship of self. And when you interject Christianity into worship of self, people get irate with you. You can't tell me that I need to live a certain way, that I need to follow Jesus or I'll perish in hell. You can't tell me that because if you tell me that and you're right, I'm in trouble and I don't like being in trouble. But I can tell you that it is our responsibility to warn them. Our responsibility to tell the whole world that if they stay in their sins, they're going to die and go to hell. It's our responsibility. Now, you don't like it. I get it. Nobody wants to be the bearer of tough news. Not even bad news. It's great news, actually. It's good news. It's the best news. Our biggest problem is, is we, we've got to, we, we've watered it down so much that it doesn't work anymore. If we quit watering stuff down, I, I, I mean, yeah, it's going to be more potent and it's, it's going to turn a few more heads and we might actually upset the apple cart like Paul did. Or the silver card, I should say. Because that's what happened here. By the way, verse 28, i got to read it so you can hear it. And when they heard these sayings, they were full of wrath. Oh, they were looking for a good excuse to get mad. Here it is. And cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Why? Oh, because now you've, now you've upset me because that's my religion. How do we deal with that? What's our mission? I'm so glad you asked. Because we've got an important one. And it's been given, given to us by Christ. Turn with me to Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verse 16. We'll start there. Now you need to see first that this is the church going to Jesus and, and meeting. We'll just see it. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. We've got a congregation that met at a certain time. Sounds like church to me. We're there all day. And when they saw him... They worshiped him. Well, that's what you do in church. But some doubted. That happens. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. 
Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Here's our issue. We've got a commission now. We've got a, a mission to go on. The heart of the church is real simple. We've got to go. We've got to tell people we have to. We are the pillar and ground of truth. Not any truth, his truth. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Say amen. amen. All, right. All right, we're getting somewhere now. I'm starting to think there's congregation out here. If you're, if you're born again, if you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the pillar and ground of the truth, that's who you are. And guess what a pillar and ground has to do? A pillar puts up. It's the exalting of Jesus, right? That's really what this is about. The foundation or the, the ground, that's the bottom part of the pillar, holds everything up. Guess what? It's our responsibility to be the foundation of the truth, and it's our responsibility to be the one who puts out the truth, puts it up. So we are the pillar and ground of the truth. Now, I stole some things from a commentary. Now, I'll just tell you, it's John MacArthur's commentary. I found, he mentions eight things in his sermon here in his commentary around this passage. In order to facilitate being the pillar and ground of the truth. Here they are. I'll give them to you real quick. First, we need to hear the word. You've got to hear the word. You've got to hear the word proclaimed. Because if you don't hear it, you won't do it for sure. Secondly, you need to memorize the word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Okay, that, that, that's a twofold process, by the way. That's memorization. And the next one, meditation. Now, the Bible tells us to meditate on the word of God all throughout the Psalms. We know that. Next, we need to study the word. Study to show thyself approved, right? The workman needeth not to, not to be ashamed. We know that passage of scripture, so we study the word. That's number four. We, fifth one is, is where we are. We're obeying the word now. So obedience. Fifthly or sixthly, whichever one we're on, I think it's six. Defend the word. You need to be ready to give an answer, right? The Bible tells us that in Peter. To the hope that lies within you. Why? Because our mission is out there. We need to be telling people. We need to be able to defend the word. Now, it's not that you, here's the thing. People get hung up on this one all the time. They think, well, I've got to go out there and I've got to have a master's degree in apologetics. No, you don't. You know what you got? You got a testimony of Jesus Christ in your life. Use it. Jesus Christ has saved me. This is what I know. This is what I believe. And nobody can take that from you. You've got to be able to articulate what you believe about that. Six, seventhly, I guess. Is that a word? Live out the word. This one's easy, right? It, it, it's what the word does inside you. It changes you. And you live it out. Day by day, I'm living out the word of God. And the last one is share the word. You've got to share it. It is imperative that we share the word. That's the, that's the heart of the mission, right? You want to fulfill that, that idea of being the pillar and ground of the truth, you've got to share the word. So get out there and do that, right? Now let me give you some scripture backing this up. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. Go ahead. I'll wait on you. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11. Now Paul is writing to the Thessalonican church, and he doesn't have anything ever bad to say to these folks. But he does have some things he wants to make sure that they understand. He says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children. 
that you would walk worthy of God who had called you unto his kingdom and glory. He says, make, I'm going to make it real simple for you. As a father does his children, I'm going to exhort you. I'm going to charge you and comfort you that you're going to walk. You need to walk worthy of God who hath called you into his kingdom of glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, wait for it, you received it. Not as the word of men, the word of God, which you've heard of us. You received it not as the word of men, but as it is written, as it is in truth, the word of God. Did you catch that? I messed it all up, but I'll, I'll read it again. But as it is in truth, the word of God. You, you, you heard the word, you received it, and now you're right there. You, you understand it's not the word of men, it's the word of God. See, so much has been lost in our culture with regard to Christian culture, I'm talking about, not the culture that's out there. In Christian culture, because of liberals in the church who have said that the word of God is not the word of God. That it's just the word of men, and it's great platitudes. Can I tell you that? It's not platitudes. It's the word of God. Amen. And it is precious. And so much has been lost because we have decided that we want it our way. We want to change the word of God into a lie. We want to, we want to change the word of God into something more palatable. It's not supposed to be palatable. It's supposed to be life changing. And if it becomes palatable for you, if the word of God becomes boring to you, you need to check your heart. Because the word of God changes people. It changes the hearts of men and converts their souls. That's what the word of God does. Yeah. By the way, it says that. But as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe, changes you. Now, just in case you didn't get it there, let's go to 1 Corinthians 1.18. Go ahead. 1 Corinthians 1.18. And this is where Paul just gets wound up. I love Paul. He, he's writing to the church of Corinth. They got big problems in Corinth. By the way, if you ever want to know what's going on in Corinth, come. Come to Wednesday night and, and we're studying through the book of 1 Corinthians. It is a hoot. It's a hoot to listen to all the problems and, and, and you scratch your head and go, how do they believe that? How are they doing that? Here it is, verse, uh, verse 18, chapter 1. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. Can I just tell you that's exactly how the world sees it? They see it as foolishness. What's the point of preaching about a, a, a Galilean carpenter 2,000 years ago who died on a cross? Because they don't know the whole story. They don't know that that carpenter was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life among men, died at the hands of his own creation on the cross, and was raised again three days, defeating death on the grave, and ascended on high to the Father. They don't know all that. And even if they didn't know it, most of them just say, oh, that's just stuff. That's just junk. Don't worry about that. Let me just read the rest of it. But unto us which are saved. And by the way, that's being saved right there. Unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. We know because we've been there. Go ahead and try to stamp us out. Go ahead and try to squash the word of God. Go ahead and try to put away those things. We know. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, we know that we've been born again by the blood of Jesus. His sacrifice on the cross for us. 
For it is written, verse 19, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. <laughs> Every day of my life I see it. They profess themselves to be what? Now we can go to chapter 1 of Romans. I'm not going to. I just want you to know. We, we have gone to that extreme right now in our, in our culture at large. We've said the foolishness of God. It, it, we don't even need that stuff anymore. We're doing away with that. We've got our own wisdom. Follow the science, they say. Don't let me get political. I will. Follow the science, they say, right? That's their own wisdom. That's the worldly wisdom. Here, here, let's get into it here a little bit. For the Jews, oh wait, I need to back up. It, uh, for after the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. And I just tell you, it is the craziest thing that God still calls preachers to preach. I got, I got two other preachers in here. Praise God that God still calls men to preach. Because it's the foolishness of preaching that God uses. I don't understand it. I've said it a time or two. I heard one preacher one time. He says, God can use anything. I don't know why he doesn't use the ability to do it. Because it would be just as effective. Men are hard-headed and, and hard to get along with. He says, for the Jews require a sign. Oh, I didn't dream it. If it pleased God by the foolishness of the preachers, save them that believe them. God uses preachers to communicate the word of God to the people of God. that don't even know they're the people of God yet. And save them. That's why we preach, brother. We preach because we don't know who's going to be saved. We preach because God commanded us to, to preach. We preach because Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And he needs to be proclaimed from on high. For the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after wisdom. Under the Jews a stumbling block. That's what Christ is. And under the Greeks foolishness. But under them which are called both Jews and Greeks. Paul says Christ. The power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man. And the weakness of God is stronger than man. God's got to be hands down every time. Now, just so you, just so we're clear on things, right? Let me read you in John chapter three. John chapter three, verse sixteen. You all know it. I'm gonna read a little further than that, though, because I always give you context. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's Jesus Christ, right? You know that. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him uh, is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation. Now wait for it, because this is where it rubber hits the road, right? That light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light. Now let me help you out here something with something. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. But guess what? Truth is light, and they won't have it. Because it wait for it. Because And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. They don't want their deeds reproved. You know how I know that? You can see it every day on TV. Every day. You can see the world flouting the creation of God. You can see the world coming against the things of God every day. They look at it and they go, 
I don't want to be bothered with sin. You can't talk to me of sin. You can't tell me that what I'm doing is not right. I can because God's word says it's not right. It's not even complicated. But what we've done is turn the truth of God into a lie so that we can make ourselves feel better about it. Hey, I'm okay. I'm not as bad as some. I'm not even, we're not even going to say that. I'm not bad at all. That's what they say now. I'll do me and you do you. That's how I say it. Can I just help you out right with that real quick? You can, do your, you can do you all the way to death and hell. Or Jesus Christ can save you from the sins that have beset you, that have, have made you blind. Oh, that we would hear the gospel message. The rest of that verse says, But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. And then there's a companion. I won't say companion. This is where Gentiles, and, and understand that the gospel came to the Jew first, but Jesus was bent on giving it to everybody. You know how I know that? Because of the woman at the well. Jesus went completely the opposite way that any Jew rabbi would have gone. He says, not only am I going to go to a woman, I'm going to go to a Gentile woman. Or worse than that, I'll go to a half-breed woman. What do I mean by half-breed? Well, she was part Jew, part Gentile. She was a Samaritan. Now, if you ever want to make Jew Jewry mad, you ever want to make the Jews mad at you, go give the word of God to someone they consider dogs. Oh, there was a prejudice. That goes all the way back, by the way. To, you, you can go back as far as you want to. The book of Jonah is a great place to go if you want to learn about that. One day I'll preach through the book of Jonah and we'll get there. John chapter 4, verse 19 says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, now this is the one at the well, I perceive that thou art prophet. Thank you, Captain Obvious. Just saying. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, in her defense, here's what happened. He, she knows he's a Jew. And she knows that Jews say in Jerusalem is where you ought to worship. But her father say worship in this mountain. Jesus said unto her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither at this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He said, it's bigger than that. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship for the salvation, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh. Now, here's the but. The hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, Jesus is making sure that we understand we are the pillar and ground of the truth. It is our responsibility to communicate to the rest of the world the truth. Now, what truth? Well, I'm glad you asked because first we have the ministry. That's the heart of the church, right? The heart of ministry of the church. Then we have the that other one, that second one that, that is so imperative, the mission of the church. We need to be about it. What mission do we have? Well, we've got a message. That's the heart of it. Let's get to that. Looking back in our passage in chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what it says. We're almost done. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and perceived up in the glory. Now, 
That, in a nutshell, is the gospel. Now, what we don't want is to misunderstand the first part of that verse. And without controversy, by, by the way, he says, without any kind of going back or any kind of uh, believer in the point, great is the mystery of godliness. Can I just tell you, that's exactly right. Because all of us have come out of darkness into light, and it's a mystery sometimes how God does that. Oh, we know that God says, well, Jesus Christ came, the sinless son of man, to seek and to save that which was lost. I'm lost, so therefore, when he saved me, I've been brought out, and I've been put up into the light. Well, hang on. How is that even possible? That's the mystery of Godliness. Because it's not possible with men. It's not at all possible. In fact, outside of Jesus Christ, we have no hope in the world. So let me give it to you plain. The mystery of godliness is found in Scripture, and we need to see it. First, let me take you to Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. It says, Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery which have been hidden, hidden from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints. Wait for it, here it comes. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. It, it, it is a scandal what happened. And nobody even appreciates it. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, eternal God in the flesh, comes, comes among us, puts on flesh and says, I'm going to be among you and I'm going to live. And then what's going to happen? My creation, the people that I create are going to kill me and sacrifice me, eternal Son of God. So I'm now the eternal Lamb of God being sacrificed for the sins of everyone. And moreover, going to stay dead. I'm going to raise again in three days, proving I have power over death, hell, and the grave. That, that doesn't bother me. That's, that's what I'm here for. I'm here, I'm here to have, bring and restore the relationship between God and man, his creation. I'm going to bridge the gap. Ephesians chapter 3 tells us that. He's going to bridge that gap and make between the twain one new man. He's going to take Jew and Gentile, black and white, everything in between, and make it all work. Jesus Christ is the great level. That's what the world doesn't like. They want to keep us divided. They want to keep us apart. You see, here's the, here's the rub. Satan decides that he's going to come in amongst men and create division. That's what he does. That's why there's a pit against black and white. That's why there's a pitting against uh, saved and unsaved in that sense. There's, a, there's a, a, a pitting against of one another. That's of Satan. Because Jesus Christ is going to say, I don't care what color you are. I don't care what creed you are. I don't care where, what your background is. You are an enmity with God and I'm going to set it right. I'm going to take the enmity that was between you and God and make it work. I'm going to take your sins myself. So that when God looks at you, when you've submitted yourself to Christ, he looks at you and sees only the blood of his son applied. That's the mystery of godliness. And can I tell you, that's the message of the church. And if we don't get this message right, it will die out. Now you say, well, God let it? No. 
I believe in the sovereignty of God. That's why I continue to preach. I can give all this up. I can say, you know what? Beans on everybody else. They're not listening to me anyway. I just said beans from the pulpit. But that's the truth of it. God uses men. And he, he wants to use his church to get his message out. You have a ministry because you've been saved by the blood of the Lamb. You have a mission that was given to you by Jesus Christ himself. And you have a message of Jesus Christ. We've got everything we need to go forward into every community and every land we come across. And we need to be doing that. That's all I got. Let's stand. Oh, I've got about three more pages of notes. But here's the thing. We need to be ready the end is coming. I don't care if you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture, a post-tribulational rapture, a mid-trib, or whatever. Don't care. The end is coming. And we need to be about the Father's business. Amen. You have been born again for the purpose of getting out first in your ministry, getting your behavior correct. Then you're to be out there on a mission to get the message of Jesus Christ into the hands of anybody and everybody. That's our responsibility. Take it seriously. Let's pray. Father God, thank you today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the passion in my heart about this. Thank you for the church. Everywhere the church is, whether it's this church or the next church down the street or wherever, you've called us to minister. You've called us to be on mission and you've called us with a message. Take it to the world. Help us, Lord. Help us. Strengthen our hand for the work ahead. Give us where we fail you. Guide us and direct us. And thank you, Lord, for your word. In Jesus' name.